Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Zach Schoenfeld. Now, Zach is the author of the new book, uh, How Coppola Became Cage. It's a fascinating look at the, uh, we could say, first half, maybe first third of Nicolas Cage's career, uh, and uh, lots of new interviews, lots of fascinating stuff here. Um, really excited to have you on today, Zach. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. So I want to I want to uh, talk about uh, a, a a moment that comes up in your discussion of Peggy Sue got married um, with uh, a, a a guy. Uh, the name is Paul Gurian. I forget exactly what his his role was on the film. The um, producer. The producer. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And he uh, he you you're you're talking to him about something that happened on on set uh, having to do with you know uh, who Nick Cage wanted to work with and and how it was going. And you're you're asking him about uh, you know uh, how how dramatic it was and and whether or not uh, something actually happened. And it, there's there's this moment. I just want to read it from the book. Here's here's Gurian. Uh, I'm saying it doesn't matter if it's true. Gurian insists, his voice rising in frustration. It's a world of make believe. If the lines sound better, they're the ones that will be used. You're trying to find out what is true in a world that functions only on what is necessary. Uh, and that's that's the end of the quote there. And I, I want to bring this up because this really does feel like the crux of so many of these Hollywood history books, right? Hollywood is a land of make-believe, the land of, land of myth-making. It's a land where, you know, if it, if it sounds good, print it. And the, the whole point of a book like this is to puncture that. Yeah. Um, I'm, so, I'm glad you highlighted that quote because I think that quote encompasses both that quote encompasses why this book was so challenging because um i was really trying to demythologize nicolas cage because there's there's a lot of mythology around him there are these legends and these stories surrounding him like oh like i heard he got his teeth pulled out to play the lead role in in birdie or i heard he swallowed a live cockroach for vampire's kiss and um, some of those stories are true. Some of those stories are false. Some of those stories are half true. But he, throughout the course of his career, Cage has had a tendency to build up this mythos around himself, exaggerate, you know, try to try to place himself among the Hollywood legends that he grew up worshiping, like Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro and Chino. Um, and so I, you know, a lot of the reporting process of this book was all about trying, like reading stories that Cage has told about himself and then trying to fact check that. For instance, um, you know, he, let's talk about the, the famous teeth of him, the, sorry, the famous story of him getting his teeth pulled in birdie. You know, early in his career, he told interviewers that in order to play a Vietnam War veteran, he got his teeth pulled out in order to experience the pain that his character experienced being injured in the war. Um, now, the story wasn't really true. Later, he admitted that he did have his teeth pulled out while he was making that film, but they were baby teeth that needed to be pulled for dental reasons. And he just kind of used that dental procedure um, as fodder to like build up this uh, the story about how intense he is as an actor. Um, and then there, there's another story in the book. Well, the story from Peggy Sue Got Married that, that you were talking about, um, I believe that that's where I'm talking about um, he, Cage has said over the years that his uncle, who directed the film, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, um, defended him against the studio because they wanted to ha- they wanted to have him fired because 
his performance in Peggy Sue Got Married was so wacky and so out there. And he, he does this, this high-pitched, nasally voice that really disturbed people on set. Um, and Cage, over the years, Cage has repeatedly told a story about how the studio heads at TriStar wanted to remove him from the film and have him replaced. And Francis Ford Coppola went to bat and had to cook a big spaghetti dinner for these like suits at TriStar to calm them down and tell them like, look, my nephew is doing the film. Like, like let him, let him cook basically. (laughs) And, um, and so when I interviewed the producer of Peggy Sue got married, he basically, what he told me was like, I don't think anyone was really trying to fire Nick. Like, I don't think that's true. That, that, that's not the way I remember it, but it doesn't matter if it's true because it's a great story. And that's the story that people are going to tell. And that's kind of, that's the way Hollywood history works. Like so many of the stories that get passed down are essentially apocryphal. Like, are they true? I don't know. Like all the stories of crazy stuff that Marlon Brando did when he was making The Godfather or Apocalypse Now, I'm sure they're somewhat exaggerated, but they're amazing stories. So they stick in people's memory. And I mean, look, again, this is this is one reason why I love reading books like this uh, and love having the authors on to talk about them is because puncturing that mythology uh, is uh, it's interesting to see what it's not just interesting to see what the true story is. It's interesting to see what people think audiences want to hear. I mean, that is that's the fascinating thing about Nicolas Cage, who is, you know, he as you say, he's built up this mythos about himself. He wants people to think he is difficult to work with for some reason. Like he, he, this is the early stages of his career. There are several moments in this book, uh, Peggy Sue got married, but, uh, so, some of the other early ones as well, where he is saying, I'm on the verge of being fired. And yeah. like, that's, that's a weird thing to cultivate about yourself. It is, but it's also, um, so, so much of the reputation that he was trying to build up was this, this extremely intense actor who challenges the line between art and commerce and you know his performances were so out there especially early in his career that they made like his performances made studio heads uncomfortable they um sometimes made the directors of the films that he was in uncomfortable he was proud of the fact that he would try these kind of out there eccentric performance styles that you know people weren't always down with i mean he clashed with Norman Jewison, when he was doing, when he was starring in Moonstruck, Norman Jewison was director of Moonstruck and uh, Cage, he saw his character in Moonstruck as being very similar to the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. And obviously this was before the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast. So Cage was drawing influence from the Jean Cocteau uh, 1948 Beauty and the Beast. And he apparently in the early dailies of Moonstruck, Cage was doing this like, gruff beast-like voice inspired by Jean Marais's performance in in that film and Norman Jewison um was like cut it out this is like what are you doing this voice isn't working um so C- Cage was proud of the fact that like some of his creative choices made his collaborators uncomfortable just because of how experimental he was being all right let's let's talk about uh the let's talk about the title of this book how Coppola became cage because you know uh, I'm when I was growing up you know in the when I was getting first getting into films in in the mid 90s late 90s right the whole Nicolas Cage is Francis Ford Coppola's uh nephew thing is 
uh, it's it's a little bit of trivia that like people know, but it's not the first thing they think of. And right. I, I feel like the early part of his career that you're talking about here, that was the defining thing for a lot of people when they were thinking about him. Yeah. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm curious uh, to get your take on, you know, what did what did the people you talked to uh, say about his trying to move away from that that reputation? Well, he had a lot of resentment and frustration with the fact that very early in his career, when he was starting off, um, people would dismiss him as what we would now call a Nepo baby because his name was Nicholas Coppola. Um, his very first film role was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He was still credited as Nicholas Coppola. Um, and when he was doing that film, the other actors would tease him and they would say things like, I love the smell of Nicholas in the morning, obviously mm. referencing Apocalypse Now. Um, they would, you know, people would make fun of him for being um, a Coppola. And I, the insinuation is that he got a free ride, like he was just coasting on his uncle's coattails. Um, the reality is that Cage did not grow, he did not have a super privileged, extravagant upbringing. His father was a literature professor and his, his mom um, struggled with mental illness and was institutionalized for a large stretch of his childhood. So I think Cage had a lot of bitterness about the fact that people thought that he had this like super privileged, fancy childhood because he's related to Francis Ford Coppola, but he didn't. Like when he was in high school at Beverly Hills High, he couldn't afford to have his own car and that was humiliating for him. Um, so he he had a lot of resentment about the fact that like his uncle was this fancy, um, in, you know, celebrated world-class filmmaker, and people dismissed him as this, you know, privileged child coasting on his uncle's fame. He wanted to separate himself from that. He wanted to um, really chart his own path. And Cage, you know, he, he talks, he, he, early in his career, he bragged a lot about the fact that when he auditioned for Valley Girl, which is the first movie that he he did under the name Nicolas Cage. Um, the director, Martha Coolidge, had no idea that he was related to Francis Ford Coppola, despite the fact that she actually worked with Coppola at Zoetrope Studios. And so he landed that role in Valley Girl on his own merits without anyone, without the director knowing who he was. So it was really important. Uh, it was really important to Cage that he prove not only to the world, but to himself, that he could make it on his own merits. Yeah. Uh, but then, of course, he does work with right. Francis Ford Coppola so, several times. So it's there's this contradiction there. Like, on one hand, he changed his name because he didn't want people to know that he's Coppola's nephew. But then he did a supporting role in Rumblefish, and then he worked with Coppola again in The Cotton Club, and then he obviously starred in Peggy Sue Got Married. So he, I mean he changed his name because he was insecure about people thinking that he benefited from being a Coppola, but then he did benefit from being a Coppola. He, he was in three of Coppola's movies, which obviously uh, boosted his career very early on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's always interesting to think about, you know, what, what might've been uh, mm -hmm. and uh, who, who's to say. All right. So the, uh, I, another, another thing that's very interesting in your book is, is, uh, especially early on in Cage's career, you know, he styles himself as a method actor uh, in the mold of Robert De Niro or uh, a Marlon Brando. But it was this weird, exaggerated form of method 
that is like again it's kind of like the mythologized ver- version of method. yeah it's like when when you say to somebody like oh he's a method actor so he lived on, on the streets for six weeks you know that, right. that that's not that's not really what method is uh, no it's kind of like the american bastardization of method acting right um it's it's method acting grew out of um stanislavski's theater uh teachings and 19th century Russia, which which um, was much more about like forming an emotional identification with your character so that you can experience the emotions that your character is going through. Um, but I think in the 60s and 70s in Hollywood, um, there emerged this new crass idea of method acting that was like, oh, you need to live in character for 24-7 during during the time that you're making this movie. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, Cage was very influenced by these stories that he heard about his, 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 his idols, uh, Marlon Brando and Pacino. You know, there's like a story about Pacino when he was making Serpico, he went so deep into his character that he, he went around arresting people and pretending to be a cop. Cage thought that he needed to do stunts like that in order to give a great performance. Um, or he just wanted to do stunts like that because it made for a great story and it helped him build up this reputation. Um, I think the most, the most infamous example, and the, obviously the book delves into the stories of the Cotton Club, um, which was one of the Coppola movies that Cage starred in. Um, when he was only 19 when he was doing the Cotton Club, um, he was very young. He was still starting out and he was very enamored with the idea of taking method acting to an extreme. And he took it too far because in that movie, Cage is portraying this despicable character, like this super racist, homicidal gangster in, you know, 1930s New York mob, uh, mob world. And so Cage like tried to live the part of a 1930s gangster. So he, he went around, he just like, smashing vintage automobiles and he trashed this remote control car and he destroyed his trailer and he was acting really destructive and and really erratic because he wanted to instill fear in people around him because he felt like that's how his character would act um at one point he there's a story in my book about how at one point he started using the n-word on set because in the movie his character uses the n-word because his character is super racist um and he almost got into a fight with um, a black person on the set who was understandably very offended. Like, who is this white actor using racial slurs? So, um, you know, the the point of the story isn't that Nicolas Cage is racist. The point of the story is that this this is a guy who took method acting to an extreme and, you know, almost alienated and, and pissed off all of his collaborators in the process. Uh, now, in in the book, you mentioned a couple times that you you asked Nicholas Cage for interviews, couldn't couldn't uh, make it happen. Um, I'm curious, a if you got a sense of why. But uh, his people did respond to a specific question about that story, right? That yes. So um, I reached out to Cage's manager multiple times, requesting an interview with him, and um, th- basically all the manager said was Nick doesn't want to participate in the book. Best of luck. It was a polite and friendly exchange and i don't i don't know why 
Gage declined to participate. I have, I have my own theories about why, but I, he never gave me a reason. Um, but yeah, I, so I did reach out again when I was like finishing and editing the book. I, I gave Cage a chance to comment on that one story about him using racial slurs during the Cotton Club because I felt like that was the most potentially contentious story in the book. You know, that's like the one story where it's like, oh, like this makes Nicolas Cage look kind of bad. Like I, I felt like journalistically I should give him a chance to respond and, and have his say. So I did. I reached out to his representatives and, and I told them that that story would be appearing in the book. Um, and his manager called me and said, you know, Nick doesn't remember this happening. He says that this never happened. And so I I gave him, I included his response in the book. What? Are, so what's your theory as to why oh, he didn't yeah. participate? So um, I don't know for sure, but two, I have a couple theories. Why, why didn't Cage participate in my book? One, I suspect that he would rather talk about his more recent work, he, especially now that he's been in kind of a bit of a career revival um, between Pig and The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent and now this new A24 film, Dream Scenario. Um, he's done, you know, his, his performances from the past, past few years have been much better received than pretty much anything he did in the preceding decade. So I, I suspect that he doesn't like the fact that my book focuses on his earlier career um, because he's, he's definitely, he's sensitive about the idea that, you know, oh, like Cage used to be a great actor, but his new movies suck. You know, I think he, he would rather talk about his, his recent performances and, and kind of celebrate this uh, career revival that he's been enjoying. Um, my other theory, and this is pure speculation. I don't, I don't have any inside information here. But I would imagine that maybe he might want to write a memoir one day. Um, and I'm sure that like any publisher would pay him millions of dollars for a memoir because it's 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 notable that Cage has never written a book. And, you know, my suspicion is that perhaps he doesn't want to participate in a book like this because he wants to save his stories for a memoir further down the road. Sure. Well, that makes sense. Uh, I, yeah. Let's 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 talk about some of your uh, the the folks you did talk to. Uh, so you know they, you have interviews with amongst others uh, David Finch, Mike Biggis. Uh, uh, of course, David Lynch directed him in uh, Wild at Heart and um, uh, Mike Biggis in Leaving Las Vegas, but uh, other other people as well. Uh, and I, I I'm curious what sense you got from them about him. What was what was the general. Uh, take on Nicolas Cage, actor, collaborator, uh, from from these folks. Pretty much every director that I interviewed about Nicolas Cage, with one no very notable exception, and we'll get to that. But pretty much every director that I talked to spoke so highly about his inventiveness as an actor and his his spirit of cre of creativity and collaboration. Um, David Lynch has described Cage as the jazz musician of actors. And I, I asked him, what do you mean by that? And, and he explained, you know, he can improvise. He, he can just riff on something and he can just keep going, you know. And Lynch is the kind of director who he likes it when actors bring their own ideas and improvise and really kind of make the character their own. Um, 
Whereas by contrast, the Cohen brothers, who I did not speak to for the book, they declined to participate. Um, the Cohen brothers clashed with Cage a little bit when they when they were making Raising Arizona. Um, and my understanding is that the Cohen brothers, they the way that they write the script is the way that they want actors to read every line. Like they don't like it when actors ad lib or change the script. And Cage is the kind of actor who really wants to like make the character his own and bring his own ideas. And the Coen brothers weren't totally down with that on Raising Arizona. Um, Mike, Mike Figgis is obviously a notable source in the book because he directed Leaving Las Vegas, which is one of the great Cage performances. And it's it's the first and only time Cage has ever won an Academy Award. Um, And yeah, Mike, Mike Figgis talked about how Figgis felt like, you know, Cage was so committed to this performance in, and, and, you know, Leaving Las Vegas was a low budget film. Cage did that movie for virtually no money. He did not expect it to be a big award Oscar buzzy movie. Like that was not the expectation at all. You know, he just, he did the movie because he was passionate about the character. And I think the first time he read the script, it, it made him emotional. It made him cry. Um, and and Mike Figgis talked about how Cage was, he's playing an alcoholic in the movie and Cage came to him early in the shoot with this crazy idea where he wanted to be drunk during the entire shoot. Like he wanted to be actually wasted during the entire shoot. And Mike Figgis was like, categorically not. Like that's absolutely not going to work. Like there's just no way, there's no way you can like be drunk and show up on time and remember your, like, no. And Mike Figgis had to talk Cage out of it. Um, and Cage eventually, he, you know, he listened to him and he, they compromised and Cage, his his other idea was that he hired a self-described drunk poet to be his drinking coach during the movie. And this this guy would just like hang out in Cage's trailer and give him ideas about like how a drunk person would act. Um, but Mike Figgis said something really interesting about how... Um, he said, like, I wasn't about to be directed by an actor. Like, I had to show Cage that I was in charge. And I think he respected me more because of that. And I, I got a better performance out of him because he he was consistent throughout the entire performance. Like, the character was consistent and it was believable. And that made for a better performance because yeah. Figgis kind of exerted his own his own authority. Well, and this is, as you mentioned, you know, this is an example of a director who has directed before he's, you know, he has a career and as opposed to some of the other uh, directors earlier, and I think a little bit later in his VOD phase where he's clearly more in control uh, of of proceedings than they are. Right. Um, Because Cage, yeah. Who was, who was the director uh, that was, was not fond? uh, Okay. So this is, I was referring to Cage's own brother. Christopher oh, Coppola, right. Right. Um, who drew, who is a filmmaker who directed Cage in a movie called Deadfall, which was kind of a huge disaster. Um, it's it's this early '90s neo noir thriller where Cage gives this wildly unhinged performance as um, you know this kind of like crazed coke snorting gangster character and cage cage goes totally over the top in that movie like he's he's wearing a 
ridiculous toupee. He looks like a 70s porn star. Um, and he's just like screaming his dialogue in every scene. Um, so, yeah. So his brother, Christopher Coppola, was very frustrated with Cage during that shoot because Cage kind of did not take direction. Cage just kind of did his own thing. He He kind of let loose and he was doing a different like wacky accent in every scene um there's a famous you know there's there's a famous clip from that movie where he is walking cages is like stalking through a strip club screaming the f word at the top of his lungs and he elongates that one syllable so it's just i I don't want to curse on your podcast but um yeah you can imagine you can imagine google the scene if you haven't seen it um so yeah, so Cage's brother was very frustrated with Cage during that shoot. Um, and he felt like Cage just like wasn't really listening to him or taking direction and was kind of turning the character into a joke. Um, there, I, I was grateful that Christopher Coppola opened up to me about this subject because it is kind of an unhappy subject for him. He, he's, he's directed a lot of movies and he is frustrated that Deadfall follows him around like an albatross. It's it's the movie that everyone wants to ask him about. And he has had kind of a fraught relationship with his brother, Nick, ever, ever since then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think you mentioned uh, toward, toward the end that they're in a not speaking phase at the moment. As of, yeah. As of last year when I interviewed him. Yeah. It's, it's, there's definitely um, a lot of, a lot of fraught feelings about Deadfall. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about Vampire's Kiss because I feel like Vampire's Kiss is is a hinge point in the book and in in this early part of his career, yeah. Um, uh, where he he shifts away from the naturalistic methody style of acting to something more exaggerated. Uh, it, it he just he he undergoes a philosophical shift in in his acting and it, totally it, you could. You could talk about, I mean, there, there's stuff that predates that, that kind of hits the same thing, but I do think it hits really it's, it's, uh, it's peak with that movie. So, uh, could you, could you, could you talk a little bit about the making of that? Yeah. Um, so Vampire's Kiss was this low budget horror comedy in which Cage portrays a mentally unwell man who believes that he's turning into a vampire and he loses his mind and descends into this kind of deranged insanity. Um, And he, he, so his performance in that movie was very influenced by silent films of the 1920s and especially some of the German expressionist films like Nosferatu in particular and uh, the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, so Cage, Cage, his father, when he was a child, his father introduced him to a lot of these like old German expressionist films when he was very young. And, and these films had a profound effect on young, you know, young Nicky Coppola. And he wanted to bring that more. He, he wanted to bring that distorted kind of surrealistic style of silent film acting into his own performances. And he felt like he didn't really have an opportunity to do that until he did Vampire's Kiss, which is a movie that is um, thematically similar to Nosferatu because it, it has this vampire theme. So he he started um, 
he started borrowing elements from Max Schreck's, you know, great performance as the vampire in Nosferatu, you know, the first ever screen depiction of Dracula. Um, th- there are these scenes in Vampire's Kiss where Cage is kind of bugging out his eyes really wide and he's doing these outlandish, distorted facial expressions. Um, you know, at the time, critics misunderstood that. They thought like, oh, he's just a bad actor. Like he, he's just going over the top. But, you know, the reality is that Cage was rejecting some of the like modern criteria for what makes a great film performance. He was, you know, he was rejecting the idea that realism should be the benchmark for what makes a great film performance. And he was channeling this more, uh, this, you know, more expressionistic um, style of film acting that flourished in the silent era in the, in the 1920s, you know, very distorted movements, distorted facial expressions over the top gestures. Um, I think he, he felt like vampire's kiss was the right movie where he would have a chance to channel that acting style because it's about a guy who completely loses his mind and goes insane. And that kind of gave him the license to go over the top with his performance. Um, the director, Robert Bierman, was very much on board with what Cage was doing in that movie. You know, I think Robert Bierman has said that, you know, he, people have this misconception that in Vampire's Kiss, like, Cage was just doing crazy stuff. Like, he was just going rogue and and doing all these crazy movements without the without against his director's wishes. And that's not true. Like, he actually worked out and choreographed these movements pretty closely with the director. And, and it was all planned out. Um, pe- people have this, I, this misconception that Cage was just ad-libbing and, and saying all these crazy lines that weren't in the script, but pretty much every line in the movie actually was from the script, which was written by uh, Joseph Minion, who had previously written the great Martin Scorsese film After Hours. Um, the one, so the one aspect of vampire's kiss where cage did kind of go rogue was the cockroach which um infamously th- this is a movie in which he swallows a live cockroach on camera that was not in the script the the script um the script had the scene where the character i think he swallows an egg and cage thought that that was a little too tame a little too boring so he had this idea you know what if he picks up and swallows a live cockroach and um and he did and it's all real like that that was not faked at all like he really he really is eating a live cockroach in that movie uh gross all right yeah um, that that uh uh the that performance in particular leads to um uh, 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 something that I, I know Nicolas Cage is not comfortable with. You, there's a story in your book about you interviewing him and asking about him, uh, asking him about this. But it's the 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 uh, I don't know the the creation of meme Cage. The, the, yeah, the, this idea of Nicolas Cage as a reaction image or as this kind of ironically detached figure uh, that is that is separated from his work. Which uh, is it's fascinating to to think about his response to this because you know as you say you, in the book you talk about his his people were not happy when you asked about it um, uh, and I get the sense that he is not thrilled to talk about it but it it does 
it it has led to a weird reappreciation and reevaluation of his work, I think. Yeah. It has led to a reappreciation of his work, but it has also led to this internet phenomenon where he is kind of treated as a punchline. Um and you you see this with um the the memes and the like the novelty items like you know you see Cage's face on throw pillows and and uh t-shirts and he's kind of treated as this joke figure and there there are all these supercuts on YouTube um there it, it all started with this supercut called Nicolas Cage losing his shit and it's it's like this 5 minute supercut of just um scenes from all different movies where you know he's cage is like screaming at the top of his lungs and going and it's like all spliced together from from 10 different movies um and he's he's been very frustrated with the way in which some of his performances have been taken out of context like for instance in these supercuts you'll see a clip from vampire's kiss and you'll see a clip from leaving las vegas and you'll see a clip from face off and i know it bothers him that these scenes are kind of cobbled together as a joke, but you don't, you don't see what actually brought the, these characters to this place of, of derangement. Like how did this character get to this emotional state? So he, he, it frustrates him that some of his great performances have been decontextualized um, and, you know, resurfaced on the internet in jokey ways. Um, So I did an interview with Nicolas Cage in 2015, not for the book. This was before the book. It was just for, I was working for Newsweek at the time and I was interviewing him for a Newsweek article. Um, And I asked him a question about how, you know, how do you feel about all these internet memes? And he, he answered the question. He gave a pretty, a pretty level-headed response. He, He said something like, oh, you know, I don't even know what to make of it. Like, I don't have any, um, I don't ha- I don't even know how to make sense of it so I just don't think about it that much. Um and after after I got off the phone with Cage, the publicist who had set up the interview, not his personal publicist, but the publicist who was like doing PR for the movie that he was promoting at the time, she called me after the interview was complete and she was like like we didn't know that you were going to be asking Nick about these memes, like we're not comfortable with that. Can you remove that question from the interview? And I was like, I was really taken aback because it, it's a totally fair question. And I, I didn't agree to any, um, I didn't agree to any conditions of like what questions I'm allowed to ask him. So I, I stood my ground. I said, no, you know, we're not going to remove it from the interview. It's a fair question. Um, but that was a jarring experience because that's how I realized like, oh, you know, Cage is insecure about the memification of his work. He doesn't like being asked about it. He, he kind of has a, a some sort of uh, frustration with the internet treating him as a joke. Um, and Vampire's Kiss is, is closely connected to that phenomenon because a lot of the, a lot of the like reaction memes that you see of Nicolas Cage's face are taken from stills from Vampire's Kiss. And, and um, I know the, Screenwriter of Vampire's Kiss, Joseph Minion, he is also he's also been kind of bewildered and frustrated by people turning his movie into a meme. Like when I interviewed him, he said, "Like I don't know anything about this meme stuff. Like Vampire's Kiss is a movie from frame one to frame like 
30,000 or whatever, like the memes are a different thing. Like I don't have anything to do with that. Um, so yeah, it, it's an, it's an odd phenomenon. Cage has definitely had some frustrations, but it seems like in, in more recent years, he's kind of leaned into the meme thing a little bit more specifically in the movie where he plays a heightened version of him, of himself, the massive, the unbearable weight of massive talent. Um, it seemed like his performance in that movie, he was kind of like leaning into all the like internet jokes and memes. And that honestly, that's kind of what I didn't like about that that movie. It kind of mm. just like played up this idea that Nicolas Cage is a joke. Yeah. Yeah. At the very least, uh, he got paid finally. Oh, yeah. Off, that, off the back of off the back of the internet memes that I think that was a movie that finally enabled him to dig his way out of like IRS debt. Yeah. Um, well, that was, uh, that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Uh, what, uh, I always like to close these interviews by asking what I should have asked, what you think folks should know about either Nicolas Cage or your book. Uh, I mean, we did, we, we barely scratched the surface of, uh, yeah. of his, of his films. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's tons to read here. Um, if you're, if you are a fan of Nicolas Cage, I highly recommend checking it out. Yeah. Well, one, one thing that was exciting about focusing on this early period of his career you know, obviously I wrote about the legendary beloved movies like Raising Arizona and Moonstruck, but it was also an opportunity to dig into some some of the forgotten Cage roles that don't get talked about much. You know, movies that have kind of fallen fallen into obscurity like um, Red Rock West, which was this great uh, neo-noir from the early 90s, super underrated film. And I'm glad I got a chance to write about that film. Zondali, which is this totally outlandish, super horny, erotic drama that he did with Judge Reinhold. Um, it was really fun to write about that, like com- his completely ridiculous performance in Zondali. The only like real erotic performance he's ever done. Um, and I also wrote about Racing with the Moon, which was an early World War II period piece that he did with Sean Penn. So it was exciting to be able to shed some light on cage performances that don't get talked about much and that I think most people haven't seen. Yeah. Um, uh, and like I said, there's a, there's, there's a ton to dig in, dig into here. So if you are interested, make sure you pick up a copy of how Coppola became cage would also make a great, uh, Christmas present for yeah, any, for any the, uh, cage fans. Nicholas cage life. super fan in your life. <laughs> uh, Zach, thanks for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, my name, My name again is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I'll be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then. 